This is Macro Horizons, episode 49, Fading the Phase, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of December 16th. So, just to recap, UK uncertainty lifted. Phase 1 trade deal, done. US budget agreement, done. Impeachment, yawn. And we're not north of 2% 10 years because retail sales? I don't think so. Tail risk reduced, market says not so fast. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market, but more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. Have I got a deal for you? Yes, Donald, you certainly do. Oh wait, maybe you don't. Perhaps the deal is complex enough that the treasury market isn't exactly certain how it should be trading it. One of the biggest takeaways from this week was the fact that we got the phase one deal. There's been a significant amount of the uncertainty surrounding the geopolitical story that have been alleviated, and we still found the treasury market roughly where we started with 10-year yields close to 185. Now, from our perspective, one of the biggest surprises was the fact that we didn't actually see two handle tens. Haven't given up on that yet, simply because there are two final weeks in the year, and these two weeks tend to be associated with choppy price action, limited liquidity, thin staffing levels, and a general lack of conviction. More importantly, the macro narrative still continues to hold even in the beginning of 2020. It's a time of the year which has historically been associated with optimism, green shoots, pricing in a more constructive outlook for the real economy. And as we get a clearer picture about the holiday spending season, it follows intuitively that we'll see upward pressure on rates unless we see a material reversal on the trade war front or a deterioration of the data that isn't foreseen at this stage. We continue to watch the health in the employment market, low unemployment, non-farm payrolls continuing to grow at a solid pace, even though there was a slight uptick in initial claims that has to do with the timing of the Thanksgiving holiday. The fact that Thanksgiving was a bit later this year than it typically is has made some of the seasonal adjustments more difficult. That holds true for retail sales as well as jobless claims. So this year is the archetype for why one doesn't necessarily trust the data around the end of the year and all the reports should be viewed in aggregate for November and December versus November and December of prior years. That being said, we can say with a straight face that it's actually not about the economic data at this moment in the treasury market anyway. So the prospects for a breakout above 2% tens will largely come down to the trajectory of risk assets. The Fed delivered an as-expected pause, and they did a commendable job of communicating it 
in a way that didn't disrupt the market very much at all. The caveat there being that the proximity to several major events, including the tariff deadline of December 15th, certainly muted some of the otherwise anticipated market reaction. Three strong treasury auctions certainly also contributed to the underlying demand for treasuries. Dip buying as a theme remains very relevant, and as we contemplate the next week or two, we will be watching that important zone in 10-year yields between 195 and 197 as an essential battleground in the case of any sell-off. So the question is, deal or no deal? I would say that the bigger question is, how much does a deal with China on the trade front really matter at this point? We saw a very sharp response on Thursday following the news that there was a deal in principle. 10-year yields rose roughly 10 basis points. We got north of 190. And while that certainly did conform reasonably well with our interim bearish ambitions, we were left wondering, well, what happens if and when this process picks back? up in a few weeks or a few months. It's one thing to have at least the outline of a phase one deal in the market. It's another thing to put the trade war behind us. Imagining a world in which the phase one deal is all that we ultimately get out of the administration, we still have uncertainties as they relate to the trade situation with Europe as well as Latin America. The other big unknown is how much has the trade war truly undermined business confidence and manufacturers' willingness to locate in or do business with certain sections of the global economy, which might ultimately come under increased tariff scrutiny in the future. And it is telling that in a week following a very strong NFP print, we had an above forecast CPI release, a Fed meeting, an ECB meeting, and the market's biggest takeaway was a tweet. A tweet away from record high equities is all I can say on that topic. The other thing that is worth highlighting about the week just passed was the FOMC meeting came out and was really largely in line with expectations. There are two key nuances that I would like to note. The first one was it's pretty clear that inflation is being emphasized again as we look forward in 2020, the relatively low inflation environment being credited for why we might not see a rate hike in the year ahead, whereas the global trade uncertainties were de-emphasized. And the Fed's decision to de-emphasize the trade concerns and related uncertainties certainly wasn't reflected by the market, at least not yet, with 10-year yields still incrementally below 2%. And your point on the inflation dynamic, I think, is going to be one of the most important things for at least the next 12 months. I took a look at the details of the SCP dots, and what you saw is the central tendency, so removing the outliers, the central tendency of inflation projections in 2021 and 2022 were at 2% or higher for both years. And yet in 2021, there was not a single FOMC member which submitted a dot even at neutral. And if you look at the median, even out to 2022, you're still below neutral. So you have a committee that's saying our central tendency, our best guess, the majority of us think we're going to be at or above 2% and we're still going to be in accommodative territory. 
That signal should help redefine the Fed's relationship with inflation. And as we've much discussed, it's a natural byproduct of the asymmetric distribution of risks and Japanification risk, both in the U.S., but also the EU. There's also the fact that when the Fed started publishing these forecasts in 2012, the assumed terminal rate for this cycle was 35 to 4%. It's now clearly 2.5% as the long run, and it's going to take us two, maybe three years to get back there after cutting 75 basis points. It seems pretty self-evident that the risks are skewed to the downside, and the more likely outcome when the Fed is called into action again will be lowering rates with the effective lower bound as the ultimate end game. You still see that as the most likely outcome, even if there is some sort of grand accord between Washington and Beijing? Most certainly, because the translation of a tight labor market to real wage gains and ultimately demand-side inflation hasn't transpired the way that traditional monetary policy theory would suggest. That's been one of the key missing components of this cycle. And for that reason, I think that the Fed will be very reluctant to hike rates, even if we start 2020 with upward pressure on the core inflation series. And we're talking about 2020 and 2021 as if we know what's going to happen. One of the things I've been digging into is how seriously can we take these forecasts? Basically, what are the error bands around the dots? And empirically, what it looks like is about a 1.4% standard deviation around your estimate. So really what that means is the end 2020 dot, sure, the best guess is 1.6% for Fed funds, but we can only really say with 70% precision that it'll be between 0.2 or 3%. Now, I think due to the proximity to the lower bound, we can probably ratchet it up beyond 70%, but it really speaks to how difficult it is to forecast a lot of these dynamics. There's a lot of time between now and the end of 2020 to say nothing of 2021, 2022. There are a lot of moving pieces. The trade war is one dimension, but by the end of next year, we'll also have gone through the presidential election. So it's better to interpret the dots as a if all goes to plan outlook rather than take them too seriously in and of themselves. So this leads to a very important question, John. Who would be the lead singer of your air band? I don't know, Ian. Who? The clear answer is Jay Powell. Well, with that cringeworthy moment safely behind us, Ben, what was your takeaway from the supply events of the last week? Yeah, there was a couple pretty interesting details within the bidding breakdown of all three supply events this week, even if the headlines themselves were pretty par for the course. Specifically was the direct bidder allocation, which we first saw pick up at threes and then tens and then thirties, which may be an indication of the beginning of a reversal of the steady deterioration in foreign allocation that we've been on about pretty much the entirety of 2019. And even if the investor class data is not going to be released until December 26th, what we saw at the November supply series was an uptick in foreign demand. Again, this comes in stark contrast to what we saw throughout all of this year. And while it's probably too soon to call this an inflection point of the return of overseas buying at auctions, it is something that's going to be worth keeping in mind as 2020 gets underway. One of the questions that I've heard innumerable times over the course of my career, and frankly doesn't have the best answer, brings us to this very specific John-splainable moment. Question is, John, who can bid direct at treasury auctions? 
The answer is actually a much wider account set than we appreciate. There's no individual name give up, but in order to bid direct, you just open an account with Treasury, have all the paperwork filled out, and the types of accounts that can do that can range from investment funds to foreign official institutions to finance ministries. It really runs the whole gamut, so it complicates the interpretation. So, for example, one of the correlations I've heard tossed around historically is that foreign equals indirect. It turns out you have to look at the investor class data overlaid with the indirect and direct takedown, and that's only when you can really start to see patterns emerge. Ian, I guess the short answer to your question is a lot of different account types can bid direct or indirect. All direct really means is that you go straight to the Fed in order to submit your treasury bids you don't go through a primary dealer. So why then would an institutional investor choose to go through a primary dealer or directly to the Fed? That would be up to the bidding behavior of the individual institutional investor. But for example, say you didn't want any flow give up through the primary dealer that you were making your bids. To do that, you could go direct to the Fed rather than putting your bids through the primary dealer. One thing I would say, though, is there are information barriers in place to try to prevent that from happening. At this point, I think a lot of accounts should be indifferent between going direct and indirect. Frankly, that makes it all the more difficult to try to draw parallels outside of looking at the realized behavior. Ben, I thought your point was great, is that when you see a pickup in direct and a pickup in foreign, well, with hindsight, that probably means it was an overseas account, which went direct. If investors are indifferent between going indirect versus direct. Is the primary dealer community equally as indifferent, Ben? Well, the system has changed over the course of the past several decades. So whereas dealers may have used to cared a bit more, now it's more of a service they can offer their clients who aren't set up to bid directly with Treasury or just simply don't want to deal with the administrative issues associated with it. And more generally, what I'd bring all this back to is there's a reason when we discuss treasury auctions, we'll often talk about non-dealer bidding because different types of accounts can both bid direct and indirect. It's really hard to figure out in real time what's going on. So instead, all we can really say is that the buy side, non-dealers, a large variety of account types, took down whatever share of the auction. It's only with hindsight when we get the investor class data that we can refine that a little bit. And a great example of that is at the 30-year auction this past week, we saw the highest non-dealer allocation on record. So this means that dealers, as a percentage of the total takedown, will now be absorbing fewer treasuries on December 16th than they did on September 16th. Ring any bells? More generally, I think that's a really interesting point. In funding markets, there's a lot of parallels between December 16th and September 16th. You have $54 billion in net coupon settlements, and you have a large corporate tax day. Ben, do you have any sense of whether dealers in aggregate across threes, tens, and thirties are putting more on their balance sheet on December 16th versus September 16th? I'm happy you asked, John. In September, the figure was $24 billion, and come Monday, dealers will be taking down something like $18 billion. So this means that in terms of balance sheet constraints on a day when we could see some upward pressure on funding costs, the primary dealer community may not be as hindered as they were a couple months ago. So this all suggests to me, at least, that some of the year-end repo-ageddon concerns might be a little bit overblown. Have there been any other efforts made by the Federal Reserve to make sure that that doesn't happen again? 
Yeah, and if anything, they've been extraordinarily aggressive. On Thursday, they updated their repo schedule so that, by our calculations, there will be $490 billion offered over December 31st, including a brand spanking new $50 billion on Monday, unsurprisingly timed with these coupon settlements and corporate tax day. These are really large numbers, and in addition to the $158 billion in bills they'll have bought by year end. You know, when I think of repo, I think of three moving pieces. You have the amount of cash in the system, you have the amount of collateral needed to be financed, and you have regulatory constraints. As we go into year end, the Fed can't really do too much about the collateral. They can repo some of it out in order to drain it. They can't really touch the regulatory constraints. Maybe there's some shifts in some intraday liquidity management, but at the end of the day, the Basel framework's not going away. But instead, what they've done is come out in extreme size and basically suggested we're going to pump the primary dealers full of as many reserves as they can handle or want to intermediate in order to try to calm markets. Frankly, I think some of the fears are a little overblown. I do expect rates to spike on year end, but nowhere near what's priced into markets. That said, Monday is going to be a really important test day. If you do see volatility on December 16th, even with this scale of intervention, that's pretty concerning. And let us not forget, there are only a few holiday shopping days left. And nothing says happy holidays like a brand new subscription to Macro Horizons. So when you say happy, how are your holidays going to be? In the week ahead, we expect a great deal of time to be spent analyzing the trade deal, figuring out what the exact details are and what they mean for different parts of the global economy. Our expectations are that the net takeaway will be incrementally positive, but there's a very, very meaningful debate whether or not we're really out of phase one into phase two, or if we're seeing phase one blatantly rebranded as phase two, to distract the markets from everything else that's going on in Washington at the moment. Regardless, we still continue to see the trading range holding in 10 years with an upward bias. We've been waiting for an attempt at 2% 10-year yields. We've seen it twice but failed. We've gotten as close as 197 in November and 195 in December. This will represent a very important technical hurdle to move beyond 2%. And once we're through 2%, there's an identifiable volume bulge at 205, with the ultimate yield peak at 214 being a longer-term goal as we start to shift our focus into the new year. Economic data will be very limited with second-tier releases, such as industrial production, capacity utilization, and a few housing data series. At the end of the week, we do get the personal income and personal spending figures, which will presumably confirm some of the weakness that we saw via the disappointing retail sales number. But as we pointed out several times, the timing of Thanksgiving this year really skews the seasonal adjustment. So it won't be a data point that we expect will really redefine or reprice the outright level of treasury yields. The shape of the curve has been fascinating over the course of the last week or week and a half. The typical reaction to the Fed meeting, i.e. policy error, leads to a flatter curve, whereas reflationary ambitions should steepen the curve, 
was overshadowed by the trade drama. And while we did see a reasonable run of steepening, that ultimately came back into line to close the week, reinforcing the range trading thesis that has been in place throughout the course of the last two or three months. The technical profile offers very little insight. We do see momentum still decidedly bearish with stochastics up near the traditionally oversold threshold. In this context, it would not be surprising to see an in-range consolidation work off some of that momentum pressure. And we're already starting to see a curl in the fast and slow stochastics without a definitive cross. It still remains very topical, the funding market and year-end pressures. The Fed did come out and announce even more liquidity than the market had been expecting around the calendar turn. Our baseline assumption remains that we will see some upward pressure on repo rates, but nothing close to as dramatic as we saw in September. Nonetheless, it'll be an important space to watch, although it could add a bit of holiday excitement at a time of the year when most in the market will be focused on closing down books and moving on to 2020. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. Please tune in next time for our fireside dramatic reading of How the Donald Saved the iPhone 11. Pro. Max. Ingreen. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, we'll rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. 
Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and Bimo accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. Bimo assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to Bimo and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. Bimo and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, Bimo's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. There's an identifiable volume bulge at 205. There's an identifiable volume bulge at 205. There's an identifiable volume bulge at 205. There's an identifiable volume bulge at 205.